Thank you, Robin, for that sweet introduction. Hi, everybody. I'm Kate, and I'm an alcoholic and a dope fiend. <laughs> and I don't ever need to forget that. Um, it's good to be here this evening. It's, it's really good to be anywhere besides six feet under because I know today that um, that's where I would be, and it's all because of the grace of God that I'm not there now. But it's really good to be in Statesboro, and it really is a homecoming for me. I lived here for six years. You see, I'm one of those people that came for four weeks and ended up staying six years. I'm one of those. But um, (laughs) let me get started here with um, an attitude of gratitude, because I have found that anything that I start with an attitude of gratitude seems to go better and um, get some thanks out of the way. I want to thank you all for inviting me. It's an honor to to be asked to speak at Willing Ways Homecoming, and I appreciate the opportunity to come and share my story and share what this program and the grace of God has done for me. I also want to say thanks to all the newcomers, and there's a lot of newcomers here tonight. I want you to know that you are the lifeblood of this program and that you help me more than I could ever tell you. When I see you come into a meeting right off the street and I see that lost look in your eyes and the fear, and I know the pain that you're feeling new in sobriety when your skin doesn't fit, I can feel your pain. Now, granted, I don't feel all of it, but I feel enough of it to remind me of my pain before I got here. And I don't ever want to forget that pain because if I do, I might go back out. And I don't ever want to go back to that hell. And for that reason, I want to thank the old-timers in this program. There were a lot, there's a lot of people here that were here when I got here years ago. Pick it up. <laughs> But um, the people that were here when I got here, I I was one of those people that was lost and, you know, I was real lost and I had that fear and my skin didn't fit and I was a fish out of water. And the old timers and my sponsors and those people gave me hope. I looked at them and they were all, you know, just doing fine and laughing and having a good time. And for that, um, I'm ever grateful because before I got here, you know, I didn't have any hope. I didn't have much of anything. I didn't have any meaning or purpose in my life. And for that reason, I want to thank my sponsees. I have a great group of sponsees. And my sponsees give my life meaning and purpose today. Um, just working with them. It just, it, it, it's, you know, what, what makes it all worthwhile right now. Um, before I got here, there were, I had no meaning. I had no purpose. I was raised in a Christian home. I read the Bible, and in the Bible it said that God wants us to live and live abundantly, and to me that meant party and party harder. And I remember saying that when I was out there partying and getting high, you know, I'd say, God, you know, God wants us to live and live abundantly. Let's do some more. Do some more. Do some more. Um, Today I know that you could fill this whole room up with alcohol and drugs. I mean, you could set up all the bottles over there and all the cases of different kinds of drugs over here and just leave me in here with them. Now, granted, I'd get tore up from the floor up. (laughs) But when I woke up the next morning, I would still have that big empty hole inside. It would still be there. The alcohol and the drugs never filled it up. And you know why? Because it's a God-shaped hole. And the only thing that's ever going to fill it is my personal relationship with my higher power. And that relationship I found here in Statesboro and in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, because 
<clears throat> I was always wanting to have more fun and more fun and more fun. You know, kind of reminds me of a little story. There were these two young couples, and um, they were real close, and the guys were close. The guys decided they were going to go hunting one night, and um, but one day, and they weren't going to be home until late at night. So the wives decided they were going to walk down to the local pub and have a couple of beers. So the girls went to the pub. They had a couple of beers, and they had a couple more. Then they had a couple more. I'm sure you know how that goes. Till they were drunk, and they decided they better just walk home. So halfway home, one of them said, you know, I really got to pee. And then I said, yeah, me too. There's a graveyard up here on the right. Why don't we go in there? So they went in the graveyard up on the right. First one went in and squatted down behind a um, headstone and then did her thing. And then she pulled her panties off white with them, threw them in the bushes. The other girl <laughs> pulled her britches down, squatted down. She did her thing. And there was a big wreath sitting there with a bow on it. So she took that ribbon and she wiped with that, pulled her panties up, and they went on home. Next morning, the first one's husband called the second one's husband and said, you know, I think my wife had a little too much fun last night. He said, why do you say that? He said, well, when she crawled in bed, she didn't have any panties on. The other one said, you think that's something? Mine had her panties on, but there was a ribbon hanging out the back saying, we'll miss you when you're gone. <laughs> I guess I ought to qualify myself for this program. Um, my sobriety date is February the 8th, 1983. I picked up 27 years in February in my home group, which is the ABC group in Bolingbroke, Georgia. I was raised in a small town in South Georgia, not too far from here, with a loving family. It was a middle-class home. Our family was very close. We had a sit-down breakfast together every morning before everybody went to school and work. We had to come straight home from school. My mother taught kindergarten, so she was always home. And then we had a sit-down dinner every night. Saturdays, we did our chores before we went out to play. Everything was real organized. Sundays, we went to Sunday school. We went to church. I taught Bible school. I was in the choir, was in the youth fellowship, and we were just, you know, real active in the community. So I can't really blame my family on what happened to me. But um, when I was about 15 years old, it's probably when I had my first drink. And what we would do, well, I had had actually sipped it before then because my parents would drink on Friday nights with friends and holidays and things like that. So, of course, I had tasted of it. But So I guess I'd call it my first drunk was when I was around 15. And the girls in the neighborhood would camp out. My daddy had a Volkswagen. We'd push the Volkswagen out of the driveway, push it a couple blocks down the road, and then crank it up and ride around. This was back when you could ride around all night long on 50 cents worth of gas in a Volkswagen. And we would just ride around, smoke cigarettes, and drink, and have a good old time, you know, just partying. That was just the fun thing to do on Friday night. Um... Wasn't too much longer after that. I guess when I was around 16, there was, um... Well, actually, it was probably about when I was 15, but there was a lot of um, unrest going on in the United States at that time, mainly the Vietnam War, and we watched the news every night, and I saw that on the news every night, and I saw all the boys coming home in the body bags and that kind of thing, and it was awful, but there was another big thing going on at that time, and it was called the hippie movement, and these hippies got together, and they decided to have this big concert, and they called it Woodstock, and... um, 
they all went and thousands and thousands of them partied for like three days, you know, with music and it was all love and it was just, I was watching that on TV too and I thought, gosh, you know, I think these people have the right idea. So I made a decision that I wanted to go in that hippie direction. And fortunately, I had a brother that was a couple years older. I'm the only girl. I'm the middle child. I have a brother two years older and a brother three years younger. And my brother that was two years older was going to rock concerts and smoking pot and that kind of thing. And my mother would allow me to go to concerts with him and his friends since I wasn't old enough to drive or anything. So... Of course, you know, it wasn't long for they were giving me all kinds of stuff to try. You know, it was like experimenting with drugs. The only problem was everything that they gave me to try, I liked. I liked it all. So I went through a phase there. This is in high school that I call my alphabet phase. This is back when we were doing THC, LSD, PCP, MDA, STP, you know, all those alphabet drugs. And I started living a double life because I was a varsity cheerleader. I was co-captain of the varsity cheerleaders. I was in the beta club. I was on the debate team. I was an honor student and doing real good at school. But then, you know, there was that... I see girls out there shaking their head. There was that other side of me that was doing all that other stuff. So I kind of like turned on and dropped out. And I did. I started dropping out of everything my senior year. I, I kept going to school. and I did graduate, you know, really good. But um, I dropped out of cheerleading and dropped out of all the, soror- the sorority I was in and all that kind of stuff. About this time, I was at the Dairy Queen one night because we used to all, you know, congregate at the Dairy Queen. And I looked across the parking lot. And I saw this guy there with this long blonde hair and this full beard, and I just thought he was gorgeous, and that that was the guy I needed to have. And sure enough, we got together, and he ended up, I found out later, not too much longer, that um, he was a dope dealer. But I didn't know that. Somehow I I attracted that kind of guy, as you'll hear throughout my story. But (laughs) he's turned me on to some other drugs, um, some uppers and some downers. And this was like the heyday of the quaaludes. So, um, you know, ludes and things like that that aren't even around anymore. And we had a real good time. I was learning, again, everything I tried, I liked. So I left this little town in South Georgia, and I went off to nursing school in Milledgeville, Georgia, left that guy behind. It was about the first, end of the first year in Mill- that I was in nursing school that I looked across the parking lot and again I saw this guy with this long blonde hair and this full beard and I thought, that's the one. So I hooked up with him and um, he started turning me on to even different kinds of drugs. He was into painkillers. And so I started doing painkillers, and I thought, whoa, you know, I really like those things. I could function all day on them. I didn't have to hide out, you know, when you're doing shrooms and acid and all, you have to kind of, you can't be out in society. (laughs) You have to kind of hide out at the cow pasture or somewhere. Um, So these drugs I could do and function, you know, so I really liked them. So I thought, gosh, you know, I have outgrown the psychedelics, you know. I'm into these kinds of things now. And um, But my partying was kind of interfering with my classes so something had to give of course my classes are what gave I did a two-year nursing program in three years so that I could have Fridays off to party and that kind of thing go to the pub or whatever finished nursing school and moved to Macon Georgia to be a nurse and um Continued that double life. I was the responsible nurse at work. I was raised with a lot of responsibility and a strong work ethic. 
And then as soon as I got off work, I went to the beer store, the liquor store, and I started drinking and I started drugging. And I did it every night, nine after nine after nine. I lived in Macon for five years, kept the same job because I was a very responsible person, but I moved eight times, so my other life wasn't going too good. And um, one of these places I lived, one of, I was living in this place with these two other girls and my boyfriend, and one of my neighbors told me one day that the management was thinking about kicking me out because I was operating a dive. And I didn't even know what a dive was. I said, well, what is a dive? And they said, well, a dive is a place where people come to congregate and they drink and it's kind of like a bar, you know, and they might be selling alcohol or whatever. But um, there are just always folks hanging out there, and that's the way it is at your apartment. I said, well, you know, we call that partying. You know, we hadn't, I didn't know anything about it being a dive or being against the law. <laughs> but at this time, my apartment, in the living room, there was nothing but a pool table and bar stools. <laughs> and then we had the kitchen with the eating area, and then upstairs in the bedrooms where the stereos and the TVs were. And we were drinking beer and shooting pool downstairs and drinking beer and shooting dope upstairs. And it was just party every night. And I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. I think I was 22, 23. But one of my roommates and I decided that we were going to go to the big, big, big party. And that party's in New Orleans. It's called the Mardi Gras. She had a sister living in New Orleans who was a barmaid. And so we said, well, let's go there and party, you know. That should be so much fun. So we went for the weekend and um, we had a bunch of dope and had our alcohol and all there. Ran out of dope the first day, of course. So <laughs> we decided we need to go get some. And we found this bar. And we, this bar was really, really, really was in the bad side of town. What I call the wrong side of town. But at that time, the wrong side of town had become the right side of town for me. But we were going to go try to find some dope because we needed some. And y'all know how that is when you need some. And we went, and I went in the bar, ordered a shot of tequila, and she started mingling around trying to find some people to party with, and she met these guys, said, I'm just going to ride up the road and smoke a joint with them, I'll be back in a minute, and she came back, she said, Kate, Kate, you got to come, there's a party, we're going to go to a party, come on, you know, no, 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 and I'd been talking with this guy at the bar, and I said, you know, this is against my better judgment, and it was, I knew something wasn't right here, I said, but I'm going to go. And the reason I went was because that's where my addiction was taking me. I, you know, I, I had to have something, and, um, and I wanted to get high, and I thought it might be there. So I went and got in this car with this group of people. <clears throat> they took us to this slum apartment in New Orleans. And when we walked in the front room, we were robbed in the front room. Our pocketbook emptied out, our camera taken, everything. And then we were taken to the back room and were used and abused back then. They had a guard at both doors. It was awful. Um, I thought they were going to kill us. I didn't take anything they had. I didn't even drink any water. But my girlfriend did. And she was laid out on the bed, passed out. And I checked her pulse, being the good nurse. Um, it was down to like 52. And I said, y'all, you know, she might not make it. She might overdose or something. I, I'm worried about her. We need to get her somewhere. And nobody even moved or said anything. And I realized then that, you know, they really didn't care if we died or not. And they were probably going to kill us. So... Later on, when some of them passed out, I kind of manipulated and conned the doorman into letting me walk outside for a minute. And I escaped and went and got the police and um, got my friend's sister. And um, we ended up staying a whole week there trying to straighten all that out. But when I got back to Macon, Georgia, the party was over. I had never seen people 
act like that, like in New Orleans. I'd never seen people change on me like that. I mean, I had had some bad things happen to me in my life, but nothing like that, nothing that bad. And the police told us they were going to kill us, that that's what they do, that they keep these women drugged in the back room and they have their friends come by and all this stuff, and then they kill them. So um, I was filled with fear, a lot of fear. I was scared if I got on an elevator with a guy and the door closed, I was scared to death if I didn't know him. You know, I was just full of fear. So the only way that I knew how to cope, because we're supposed to build up coping mechanisms as we grow up, but if we do alcohol and drugs, if we start them at a very young age, then we don't build up any coping mechanisms. And I had no way to cope with this except to do more drugs, and I did. I did all I could do 24-7, day and night. Wake up with nightmares, and I'd have more. I was doing painkillers all day at work. I'd go by the beer store and come home and do them all day at home. We had cases and cases of them at home, and we had narcotic cabinets full of them at work. And I would have stayed high. My, um, this is what it did for me. I, I know there's some of y'all out there who have seen the movie The Wizard of Oz. If you remember the good witch Glenda, the first time you see her, Dorothy's there with the munchkins and you see her coming down in this bubble and she's slowly floating down in that big bubble and it gets close enough for you to see her and she's all sparkly inside and smiling and she's dressed real nice and everything looks so good. That's what my drugs did for me. Inside that bubble that I created, I call it a force field. It was like a force field around me to keep the fear out and to keep the pain out. As long as I could stay high in that bubble, the pain was gone and the fear was gone. But as soon as the bubble started to dissipate, then, you know, I needed more. Now, a problem with doing painkillers 24-7 like that is, for me, I got a huge monkey on my back. And it was real scary to be that strung out. Um, and I decided that I need to get away from that man because <laughs> he was my problem. If I could get away from him, you know, I might get off this stuff. And about that same time, an article came out in either Time magazine or Newsweek, one of those magazines on the cover of it. It said, new clout drug. And it told you it was actually an old drug, but it had become a clout drug with CEOs, with airline pilots, with those kinds of people because it was non-addictive. It would give you energy so you could do what you needed to do, but it was non-addictive and it wouldn't keep you up all night because the high didn't last that long. The name of the drug was cocaine. (laughs) Of course, they weren't talking about psychological addiction. And we're talking about physical withdrawals like you get from painkillers. But anyway, I was telling a drinking buddy of mine, I said, you know, um, I've read about this drug, and, and I think if I were to do that, I could get off these painkillers. And this was my plan to get off the painkillers was to get on the cocaine because it wasn't addicting. And he said, you know, I know just a guy from you, for you. I have a friend that just got out of prison about six months ago. <laughs> he had been busted with a half a kilo of cocaine, and I'm sure he'd be happy to um, introduce you to that. So I said, okay. He took me to this guy's house out in the country, which I thought was great. It was 26 acres fenced off. You could close the gate and lock yourself in there. He had a roundhouse. There was a pond out there and a deck by the pond. Beautiful setting. I went out there to meet the guy. And I went in and he had a um, box of photographs sitting on his coffee table. So I opened the box and I started going through them. 
and there were all these pictures of when they built that house. And I said, my gosh, who are these people? All these long-haired, hippie-looking boys, you know, with no shirts on and cut-off jeans. He said, well, those are some members of the Allman Brothers Band. And whew, that really did it for me because I'm a big fan of the Allman Brothers Band. And here they were helping him build his house. And I kept looking, and there was another picture in there of a Volkswagen just riddled with bullet holes. And I said, my gosh, what is this? And he said, well, that's when I got busted. The FBI busted us, and they were all squatting down, and I was going through in the car, and they all shot at me and had all these bullet holes in it. And, you know, I was like, wow, I was impressed. (laughs) I had gotten to the point in my life that it took that kind of stuff to impress me. But anyway... We hit it off, and um, we started doing this new non-addictive drug together. And do you think that cured my addiction to painkillers? No. You know, I actually found out that you can mix the painkillers with the cocaine and do what they call speedballing. So um, we ended up both um, getting strung out on all that stuff. My life was crazy. I was still going to work every day, still drinking and drugging all day at work and when I got off and then binging on this stuff on the weekends. And the next two years were nuts, completely crazy. And then I decided, you know, I need to get away from this guy because he's causing all these problems too. And about that time, I totaled my car and decided to take a geographical cure and move back home with Mama and Daddy. Because I was going to move back to this little town, and I told Mama and Daddy, I said, I want to work the 3 to 11 shift in the little tiny local hospital, and I don't want to date any men because they're giving me all kinds of problems. I just need to save money to go back to school because I needed another nursing degree and to buy a car because I had totaled my car. So I moved back home, and I did okay for a little while, but I did not know that I had a disease and that I needed to quit all mood-altering substances. I know now if you have a monkey on your back, the only way to get that monkey off is to starve him off. You can't feed him anything. And every time I had a weekend off, I was partying like crazy. And before long, I started doing my thing at work again, and it got really, really crazy because I was staying at my parents' house in my old bedroom. My stuffed animals were around. I'd go home at night. after I Well, I'd get off at work at 11 or 12 and go to the liquor store and ride around and drink for two or three hours and then go home and go to sleep. And these stuffed animals in my room, they would come alive. <laughs> and they would start moving around, you know, like those dolls that bite and all that kind of stuff, and it was real scary. They were always after me, and one night I went to sleep, and it was the frogs outside, and they were croaking, and they were coming after me, and before I knew it, I had a thousand frogs on top of me in the bed. One night it was a car riding by, and I looked out my window, and the whole side of the car fell down, and they were shooting me with machine guns. I was having nightmares like that night after night after night. It was horrible. Um... Long story short, there was an anesthesiologist at work who was in recovery, and I was partying with his daughter, and he knew I had this problem, and he and his wife did an intervention and sent me to treatment to a professional's program for the doctors and nurses in Atlanta. I was 28, too much too young to be having to quit everything, and they told me I had to quit everything. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, ridiculous. I never planned on quitting drinking. I started off with alcohol, and, I, you know, I never thought that I would ever quit drinking. I just needed to get these men and these addictive drugs out of me, you know. But they said, no, you got to quit everything. So I did five weeks of treatment there. They sent me to the halfway house. 
which was several months long, and then they sent me to the three-quarter house. I was going to Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, the Nurses Support Group, the Caduceus Doctors Support Group, um, a women's therapy group, going to all these meetings all the time. And um, still, what wasn't getting any better. And what I was not doing, I was not working the steps of this program. I was not listening to a sponsor. When I went to meetings, I was looking for the cutest guy there. I was not looking for the woman that had the program that I wanted. I just wasn't doing it right at all. And I was still every now and then going to a bar to drink. I was doing what I call staying sober and living dirty. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And after about six months of doing that, I decided this is a great program. You know, I just love this program. It's just wonderful for you people. It is just great. But I think I need a different program, and I decided to work the Kate Anonymous program. That's what I call it. And what my program was, I was going to use just a little bit every now and then and keep going to these meetings because I like the meetings so much and I like the people there and, you know, it was cheery and all that. So I tried to use a little bit on the side and go to meetings, continuing to go to all those meetings I was going to and just doing a little bit on the side. And, you know, after a couple months, I realized how crazy that was. But there were only two people that knew, me and God, and that's too, too many. And um, I got to that point that they talk about in the big book. I got to the jumping off point, you know, where I did not know how to live sober and I could not live drunk anymore. And I saw that, thought that there was only one way out, and that was to check out. So I was living in a three-quarter house with two other nurses, and they weren't there And at that time, and I decided I would just stab myself in the heart with a pair of scissors. And so I didn't want them to come home and find a bunch of blood everywhere and have a mess to clean up. So I filled the tub up with water, and I got the scissors. I wanted scissors instead of a knife because I didn't want my hand to slide over the knife and cut my hand, you know. (laughs) So you know I was thinking real clearly. But anyway, I got in the tub, had the scissors there and all that, and I checked out. I I couldn't do it. Um, And shortly after that, I hit my bottom. And I hope I never have to go back there again. Um, And this is what happened. I came to. I was in a bathroom stall. I did not know if I had been there for three minutes or three hours. I didn't know how long I'd been passed out. I just knew that I was desperate, that I was scared, that I was lonely, that I was devastated. I had reached that point that they talk about in the big book of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, page 30, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I was there. I hated myself. I hated what I had become. I hated what I was doing. I didn't even know who I was anymore. I didn't, I was lower than pond scum. I just didn't feel like I needed to be here anymore. But speaking of more, I knew that I wanted more. And I knew that I was going to get some more because I had to quit feeling the way I was feeling. And it scared me really bad. Step one, I knew I was powerless. There was nothing that could stop me from doing some more. I was totally powerless. 
I stood up, I grabbed hold of the wall, and I cried out to God. I said, God, please help me, because the only way that I'm going to be able to stay sober is if you lock me up in a prison. Please have these people lock me up in a prison where I cannot get anything to do. But you know, I was already in a prison. Alcoholism and addiction is a prison. But it is a prison where the key, where the locks are on the inside. But I didn't know that. And we have the keys. And the keys are the steps, the 12 steps of this program, are the keys to getting out of that prison. I did not know that at that time. But my higher power did help me. I didn't do any more. Went straight to the three-quarter house. Called the lady that ran the three-quarter house. Called my psychiatrist. Called the nurses that I... Um, that lived with me, called my head nurse, called my mama. I called everybody and told them what, what, I, what I was doing. And they put me in a detox center in Atlanta for six days, and then they sent me to Statesboro, Georgia for four weeks at Willingway Hospital. The first night when I was in Unit 1, I was laying in my bed in the detox um, unit, and... I was just crying and curling up in the fetal position, crying and crying. And I thought, you know, these people here, they know something that I don't know. They have something that I need. And um, I cried out to God again. I said, please help me, God. I said, I will do anything these people tell me. If they want me to stand on my head in the corner, I will do it. Just help me. And I believe that's when I took my second and third step at a heart level, you know. I knew there was another way out and that I was going to turn it over to God and to the people there in the meetings. <clears throat> and um, so I said, you know, I'll do anything y'all tell me to do. And I completed my treatment. What they told me to do was to go to the women's residence. I said, okay, I'll go over there. The first thing I remember them telling me when I got there was that I could not date for a year. And I thought, oh, my God, I must be in the wrong place. <laughs> What am I going to do if I can't date? You know, where are these men that are supposed to make me feel good? I can't have them for a year. But that was the best thing that happened to me because that gave me the opportunity and allowed me to develop a relationship with my higher power. And that relationship is what sustains me today. And I learned while living there that self-esteem comes from doing esteemable things. Who to thunk it? <laughs> you know, self-esteem comes from doing esteemable things one day at a time. It's like in the 24-hour book. It's December the 16th, where it says life is not a search for happiness. That happiness is a byproduct of doing the right thing. And doing the right thing, living at the women's residence one day at a time, I started to heal. Um, after I'd been there for six months, they released me from the halfway house. But they asked me if I would stay on as a resident attendant. I think that was a way of saying, you know, you're not quite ready to go. But um, So I ended up living there for three years. And when I did start dating, I was dating a few different guys. And there was this woman that I worked with named Faye Hill, who's here today. <laughs> They said, you need to date Jimmy Arnold. I think you need to date Jimmy Arnold. I said, oh, he's not my type, but I mean, who was my type? But um, I said, he, he's got too much baggage. He has a little baby, and he's been divorced, and I just don't think I can take all that on. But I did date him, and um, we, we started going out. We were good friends. We had been in some meetings together. We, were, we worked together. We were in some support groups together. And by this time, we were both in, back in college at Georgia Southern. I was working on that second nursing degree, and we had a biology class together. 
So I went out with him, and as the song says, we fooled around and fell in love and um, got married. I want to tell you about our wedding day because it's the happiest day of my life. We got married here in Statesboro in a Gothic Methodist church. And it, believe it or not, I did the long white dress, you know, with the veil and did all that. And I was standing there with my daddy. It's 5 o'clock. They chime five the bells chime five times and the doors open and I'm holding on to my daddy's arm and I'm looking around and there are all my AA friends, all my willing way friends, family from all over the United States, my college friends, my high school friends. I couldn't believe all these people had come to see us get married. Then I looked up the aisle and there, there was Jimmy standing there and he smiled at me and I smiled at him and I knew at that moment in time that I was the happiest girl in the world. I felt so much joy. But you know, a part of me felt like I don't deserve this joy. I don't deserve to be this happy. All these horrible things that I did out there, drinking and drugging, I do not deserve to have all these people come see us, get married, and for me to feel all this joy. I just don't deserve it. But you know, the grace of God is an undeserved pardon. You don't have to do anything to deserve it. It is a freely given gift, and I knew I had been given that gift. It was a beautiful day. Um, Shortly after that, a few months later, I graduated from um, Georgia Southern, and I graduated with a 4.0 GPA. And this was a healing point for my parents, I know, because we were in that big auditorium at graduation, and when they said my name to stand up all by myself because I was a summa cum laude and I knew that my parents were up there in the audience somewhere seeing that and I knew that that was a healing point that God was going to heal that relationship too. It's another miracle in my life. Um, Shortly after that, we decided we were going to have a baby and got pregnant with the first try. So um, (laughs) we thought that was great, but it turned out to not be very good. Um, I had a malignant pregnancy, so we lost the baby, and I had to go through um, five months of chemotherapy. Now, I thought I had done some heavy drugs out there when I was doing acid and all that kind of stuff, you know, but when they put you on that chemotherapy, those are heavy drugs. I had been married one year, and I was bald-headed. No hair anywhere, and my fingernails were coming off, my toenails were coming off. Jimmy was a trooper. He took care of me. He had helped me get in and out of the tub and all that kind of thing. And it was rough. I was in a poor prognosis group, and we didn't know if we were going to be able to to heal me or not. I had already had a couple of minor surgeries. And one day I was at home alone, and I was laying in the bed looking out the window. And... I was thinking about the 11th step and praying for God's will. And I prayed for God's will for years. I think I was five, six years sober at this time. But, you know, praying for God's will on a daily basis when I was just trying to get over my addiction was a whole lot different than praying for God's will when I've got cancer and I'm in a poor prognosis group and I don't know if I'm going to make it or not. But I looked outside. It was autumn. It was beautiful. The leaves were changing. And I asked God that his will be done in my life, whatever it was, and a peace came over me. Just like the peace that came over me in Unit 1 when I prayed to God and surrendered. In Unit 1 when I prayed to God and surrendered, I felt like God reached down and held me in the palm of his hands and said, Kate, everything's going to be all right. And when I said that prayer again and asked for God's will, 
I felt him hold me again, and he said, Kate, everything's going to be all right. And I knew that whether I lived or whether I died, that everything was going to be all right. And that gave me so much faith, and that faith carries me today. And I learned through that a very valuable lesson, that we have a lot of blessings in life, and we see the good blessings that come when we're having good times in our life and good things are going. But what we don't always notice and what has been true in my life are the blessings that come through adversity. And the greatest blessings that I have received in my life have come from my darkest days. The greatest blessings are when I went through my recovery from my addiction, when I went through my cancer and my chemotherapy, when I got faith, when I got hope, when I got peace and peace of mind. And peace of mind is something we cannot buy. You can be a billionaire and have all the money in the world and you cannot buy peace of mind. And I got peace of mind through this program. Anyway, shortly after that, um, we left town. Jimmy was a top biology student, and he decided to go to dental school, so we moved to Augusta. <clears throat> I asked him, I said, Jimmy, you know, how am I going to get a job? I'm a nurse. I'm an alcoholic addict nurse who has a wig on. And, <laughs> and where I'm going to go look for a job, you know, in Augusta. And... Um, Jimmy said, pray about it and turn it over. So I did. I prayed about it and I turned it over. The next day I went and got a newspaper and University Hospital was looking for a head nurse at their alcohol and drug unit. The six years that I had lived in, um, that I had lived here in Statesboro, I started off as a unit clerk and then I worked as a detox nurse. And then when I, by the time I left here, I was a nursing supervisor. So when I went in and told these people at this A&D unit, they said, oh, wow, Willenway Hospital, you know, that was like, I had that going for me. <laughs> You'd think that would go against me. <laughs> but it went for me. So anyway, I got that job and um, worked. And we stayed there seven years because he did a residency in endodontics. And um, by the time I left there, I had gotten a couple of promotions. And again, through the grace of God, I was director of the place, the clinical director. That is truly a miracle. And that truly healed a lot of wounds that I had about my nursing career, about what I had done with my nursing license. And today I make amends to my career by being a nurse advocate and working with other recovering nurses because I love nursing. If there's any nurses out there, I think it is a great career, and, um, and I'm happy to give back there. Um, we moved to Augusta, I mean to Macon to open my husband's practice in 1996. And that's where we live now. He has um, he put a shingle out and has a practice. I work there a little bit. I get to go in when I want and you know get off when I want. And people say people that know me say, "Gosh, how do you get such great hours?" And I go, "Well, I'm sleeping with the boss." <laughs> My life today is um, is truly a miracle. The whole, my whole life today is a miracle. What has what has happened to me? And um, we have a home out in the country. A very good day for me. A perfect day for me is when I have nothing more to do than sit on my screen porch and rock with a cup of coffee and a spot C and do step work. That's a beautiful day to me. It's a beautiful life now. My cup is running over, and I am drinking from the saucer, and I want to tell you about one more miracle before I close. 
You know, I said when I married my husband, he had a daughter, and that was too much baggage. Well, because of my chemotherapy and all that, I couldn't have any children of my own. You know, who knew that I wouldn't be able to have any? So Sally, the red-headed stepdaughter, was my only child. She moved to Macon to be with us, and she got married. She's a nurse now. She has given us three beautiful grandchildren. And I had the opportunity and the privilege of being in the delivery room when she had our first grandbaby. Her name was Morgan. Her name is Morgan. Um, Beautiful baby. When she was born, you know, they put her under the light and they cleaned her up. She was absolutely perfect. And the first time I held her in my arms and I looked at her face and I looked in her eyes, I knew that God was going to heal that wound just like he had healed all the rest. So I want to say to all the newcomers here, Please don't stop before the miracles happen in your life. And to each and every one of you, I wish you the joy and the love and the freedom of this program. Thank you for listening.